This week on the Back Table Podcast. There have also been innumerable cases where uh, an external biliary drain was placed, but uh, it could not be internalized. And then with the help of the disposable scope, we could find the stricture or the narrowing and the drain was eventually being able to successfully be navigated and an internal external drain could be placed. And this is all sort of spontaneous on the fly. Uh, again, a tool like everything else we have that can kind of help you when uh, a lot of our other uh, known treatments or options are not working particularly well. Hello and welcome to the Backtable podcast. Backtable is your resource to connect with your IR colleagues and learn tips, techniques, and the ins and outs of the devices in your, in your cabinets. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host. I encourage our listeners to check out our newer procedure-based app, which includes videos, articles, and even our podcast to help you tackle the cases on your board. The app is free, and it's available on the iTunes store. Today, I'd like to welcome back our dear friends, Robbie Srinivasa and Jeffrey Chick from the University of Michigan. Thanks, guys, for coming back with us today. How's everything going? Good, good. Thanks for having us back. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about IR endoscopy, um, which... Uh, it seems to be like everything else that's new in our field, you guys are uh, experts in. Um, before we really kick things off, uh, I was hoping you could tell us about what you guys are going to be doing at SIR regarding endoscopy or really anything else. Uh, so, yeah, this, uh, this year at SIR, we are coordinating an IR endoscopy workshop, so interventional endoscopy for the, for the interventional radiologists. And uh, the goal of this is actually to kind of educate all interventional radiologists on this tool that's available and that's been available for many years now uh, that can be added to the armamentarium of interventional radiology. Um, it, it truly is a, such a versatile tool that allows you to do so many interventions that were otherwise impossible and make things that were extremely difficult in the past uh, a lot more simple. And it also has the benefit that it has no radiation exposure associated with it. So you can do a lot of longer procedures that may be cumbersome to do fluoroscopically now with direct visualization. It's really easy to use. It's a, it, it, we've, we've taught many of our medical students, our residents and fellows how to use uh, endoscopes as well for a variety of different uses. We've developed some phantoms and other things that we were going to show at uh, our SIR workshop this year. And so uh, myself, uh, Jeff, uh, Matt Johnson, Kelvin Hong, and Harjeet Singh are the uh, folks who are going to be running this workshop this year. And our, our whole goal is just to educate everyone and about the versatility of this tool um, so that other interventional radiologists can start using it as well. Yeah, it's also uh, exciting because it has very cool tools. I mean, everybody wants to use a laser, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, the lasers are the cool <laughs> so, stuff. Yes, it's literally like playing. We we joke with our fellows that it's literally like playing asteroids when you're when you're literally pulverizing stones with a laser or using the the lithotripters to try to fragment stones. Nowadays, we've been using the lasers, and it, it works so beautifully. You can literally dust a stone into tiny little uh, dust particles from from a huge stone. So it it makes it uh, really quick and easy to to make quick work of these large stones. It's awesome. I mean, that's the only thing I've done with endoscopy has been uh, laser lithotripsy in the biliary tree, which uh, I learned from Dr. Teratola at Penn. Uh, is that where you guys got your start doing this as well, or is this something you both picked up in Michigan? Well, I think a little of this had already been done for several years, actually, in Michigan by uh, some of the other faculty that were here. Uh, Nora DeSica had actually been uh, removing stones from the uh, biliary system as well as the gallbladder. Uh, we have been fortunate here to have a lot of the uh, various endoscopes in our own department. 
because a lot of our ventures have been joint with urology. Uh, so we have a whole host of different scopes. And Ravi kind of took that to the next level uh, in many cases here and went outside the biliary tree, went into the uh, genital urinary system, the kidneys, the gastrointestinal system, and uh, has done a whole host of uh, interesting uh, things. Kind of launched from Scott's teaching as well to some degree because uh, Scott at Penn had, had kind of given us the foundation for doing uh, biliary endoscopy and 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 do, treating stones with uh, lithotripsy, uh, and then just using the scope for a variety of other reasons just came kind of naturally. And I know a lot of people around the country are you know sporadically doing endoscopy. You know, p- people at Indiana, uh, at Hopkins, um, WashU, Dan Pikus has has published this stuff. Uh, you know, like thirty years ago, it's it's been in the literature, uh, but. I think the problem is that the accessibility of endoscopes and the, just the desire to try to use it more and the fear that, you know, you'd be competing with other specialties, I think didn't really push people to start doing it more frequently. And I think now this is what we're trying to push for is that, you know, endoscopy should become just another tool that we use in our toolbox. Like we use catheters, wires, we use all these different uh, uh, stents and balloons and all kinds of different things. But adding just an endoscope to the, to the mix of the tools that we have uh, is just a natural extension of, of what we do as interventional radiologists. Ravi, you bring up an important point, uh, you know, about this being, you know, another tool in the cabinet. We, we have so many different things that we use on a daily basis. This one is a bit different from, uh, you know, the average tool that we have in our cabinets. What has the learning curve been like for you and, and for most people who approach this? What we found is that the learning curve is actually not not bad at all. Like uh, we, I had a medical student who was from another country who just recently just wanted to just try out the endoscope and practice using a phantom that we kind of developed using some supplies from Home Depot uh, and then uh, one that we also 3D printed <laughs> um, and literally just put the scope in. It's it's so intuitive. You hook it up to the you make a few connections that we, we have some tutorials on how to do that type of stuff as well. But then just calibrating the scope is really simple. And then once you get it in your hands, uh, it literally takes probably about five or 10 minutes of working with the scope until you kind of get a hang for it. And then after, you know, you've spent an hour or so with it, it's literally just like using any other uh, wire or any, any other catheter that we normally use. And it's so simple and, and easy to use that it's, uh, it makes it really simple. I can speak a little bit firsthand to that because uh, I hadn't really done that much when I started and Ravi kind of taught me how to do everything. And it's uh, actually very simple as he described. I mean, it's, it's just like any other tool. Uh, it takes a little bit getting used to the uh, 360 motion and the up and down movement of the scopes. But overall, uh, we're not traveling long distance with the scopes for the most part. We're evaluating small tracts such as the biliary tree inside the gallbladder, inside the stomach, inside the kidney. And it's relatively easy. Uh, once you have a wire uh, already accessing those, the scope can either go alongside the wire through a sheath or just over the wire. And it, uh, after a few cases, uh, it's more or less like you're natural. Yeah, and there's a bunch of different scopes available. So we have rigid scopes, we have flexible scopes, we have disposable and non-disposable scopes. So there's a bunch of different scopes that are available uh, for different uses. So like in the gallbladder, we found that using a rigid, a larger rigid scope actually makes uh, breaking up stones and taking out stones a lot faster uh, compared with, you know, using a flexible scope, which we usually use in the biliary tree or a flexible scope in the genitourinary system or in the uh, in the bowel if we're doing... Uh, 
you know, gastrointestinal endoscopy. So there's a bunch of different scopes and they're all equally similar in terms of their setup. They're all fluid based scopes that you connect uh, saline to in order to use them uh, and to help with visualization, but they're all um, set up in a very similar fashion. So uh, once you learn how to use one of them, you should be able to use pretty much all of them. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, on uh, the manuscript of yours that I read, uh, you know, the, the different available scopes that you guys had mentioned ranged from seven French to 22.5 French, some flexible, some disposable, some, you know, reusable. Uh, I don't suppose there's just like a standard, like, all-purpose scope that, you know, you could start with, is there? Well, I would say initially we sort of toyed uh, back and forth between the reusable scopes, either the 16.5 French flexible scope, which worked particularly well in, say, the biliary tree or the gastrointestinal tract or the uh, renal system. And as Ravi uh, said, the 22.5 French rigid uh, reusable scope uh, was something that we used in the gallbladder quite often. Uh, so those had been the working horses before that. Uh, then Ravi discovered that there was that uh, disposable scope, the 9.5 French disposable scope, which more or less can be used anywhere. So I found that both the 9.5 French uh, disposable and the 16.5 French and the 22.5 French uh, reusable scopes have been the ideal ones and the ones that can be sort of transitioned to any situation. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you okay. know, th there's a different kind of working channel size and depending on what size scope you're using. So with the rigid scope, the 22 and a half rigid scope, it has a four millimeter working channel. So you can put really a ton of different devices. If you think about it, the three millimeter endobronchial forceps will fit right through it. So if you need to grab something uh, with an actual rigid forcep, you can you put those through the 22 and a half French rigid scope. Um, you can put basically anything through the rigid scope that you would normally use. You can put snares, baskets, lasers for sure. Um, the smaller scopes, like the 16 and a half French uh, uh, flexible scope, that's that's reusable and re-sterilizable. That one has a five and a half French uh, working channel. And so the largest device that can really fit, the largest devices that can usually fit through that are like the biopsy forceps, the Cordis 5.5 French biopsy forceps, and then the uh, Teratola device, actually the, the non-over-the-wire Teratola device will fit through it. Uh, easily, and you can use that through the scope while watching it directly under direct visualization. So these are all coaxial scopes, so you can literally see the device right through the scope channel. Um, with the smaller scopes, like the nine and a half French and the seven point nine, uh, so the nine nine and a half French disposable scope and the seven point nine five French uh, reusable scope, those have three point six French working channels. So those you can put pretty much the lasers, the baskets. Um, small snares, you can potentially fit through it as well. Uh, but uh, apart from that, you're kind of a little limited. The other thing about these scopes is the, the reason you might want to choose to use a larger scope over a smaller scope is the same channel that the device goes through is also the same channel where fluid goes through. So if you think about it, if you're putting a, you know, through a, a 16, if you're putting through a nine and a half French scope, which has a 3.6 French working channel, if you put a three French, uh, lithotripter device or three French device through it, you only have about 0.6 French left of ability to get fluid in. So your visualization is markedly diminished if you use a smaller scope with a larger device um, because your ability to infuse fluid is reduced. Um, that's why we choose to sometimes use the larger scopes if you can get away with it. Um, but certainly there's a slightly higher risk when, you, when you're putting bigger devices into the patient. But um, we found that you can do it relatively safely in the biliary tree. You can go up to 16 and a half French um, relatively safely. And that's what Nara DeSica had been doing for many years. Um, 
but it's it's much more low profile to just put the nine and a half French scope through there and you get a really elegant, easy result. You can sometimes even do it single session. You just get access into the biliary tree, dilate it up to accept a 12 French peel away sheath, and then you can put the nine and a half French scope through it and, and do your work and take out the stones right right away in one single session. So um, so it has a bunch of different benefits depending on which scope you end up using. So. Got it. And, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like really, though, you know, uh, what you're using really, I mean, it's going to vary depending on where you're going and what you have to do. And so there's no, like, you know, one size fits all. No, no, cer- certainly. And it's it's a little bit uh, variable, I think, depending upon your practice, too. So uh, the, I mean, we have reusable and we have disposable. So if your practice doesn't really necessarily have the scopes available, uh, there are you know, options such as our uh, disposable scope, uh, the litho view scope, which can be used, uh, which can be purchased for about 1500 uh, per scope. It comes with a portable monitor and so forth. And you can basically just do all your work through that. And, but if you happen to have either urologic or gastrointestinal scopes on in your uh, practice there, then those are kind of standard to use because they can be sterilized and used over and over again. I think the disposable scope is a real game changer in terms of ability for everyone to start using endoscopes because it's so like it comes packaged just like any other catheter would come packaged. It comes in a little box that's a long box. It looks like it's a catheter box. You take it out and you hook it up to this portable monitor that comes with the system. If you use a certain number of scopes uh, per year then they provide the monitor to you for free. And you just literally just make one connection point to the to the uh, monitor, and then you just connect up fluid to the sidearm, and you're ready to go, basically. Uh, there's no calibration or anything that you have to do. You just can put it in and start going, just like any other catheter. So the nice thing about that is that, you know, if especially for our technologists and staff that are working with us, if we are struggling during a case and we need, we think a scope might help us, like we're doing a, you know, a, a uh, a biliary case and we think having a scope might help us we can just ask for the disposable scope and it's literally in the room just as quickly as you could get a catheter in there so i, I think as robbie suggested it's uh the litho view disposable scope has come in handy so many times uh for certain sort of unexpected uh events there was a time where there was an a biliary drain was being placed and an accu stick broke uh inside the biliary tree and uh, we use the disposable endoscope to find the broken fragment and remove it. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and like Jeff said, we, we've had, you know, this is not just limited to the biliary tree, too. We've had times like there was that one case where we had uh, the, a kidney that had a pylovesicostomy and astomosis. And, you know, the patient had a native ureter and we couldn't get in uh, to the pylovesicostomy. We kept going down the native ureter, which was ligated, and we couldn't find the pylovesicostomy in this this collecting system was massively dilated and finding this tiny anastomosis was next to impossible with fluoro alone. And, and several different operators had tried on previous occasions to try to recanalize this uh, pylovesicostomy and had been unsuccessful, but we literally put the scope in. You could see the anastomosis really nicely. We just aimed it right at it, put a wire right through it and you're in and uh, the case was over within 10 minutes. Um, so it really makes things a lot easier and saves a ton of radiation dose to, to the operator as well as the patient. Just focusing first on, you know, patient setup when you're about to approach these, I mean, what's different about this? I mean, starting with, you know, sedation versus anesthesia. 
So I think a little, uh, you just have to be uh, prepared and uh, just plan a little bit differently. Uh, so most of the time we had done the majority of the cases here under general anesthesia, uh, just because a lot of fluid is instilled, uh, use high pressure saline uh, instilled through the scope. So patients can either become hypothermic or they can have electrolyte imbalances. Uh, so here our practice for most patients had been under general anesthesia. That being said, there are a lot of other practices throughout the country uh, who have done this either with just local or with moderate sedation. So the folks at uh, Wash U uh, had done a lot of these in the past. Uh, they published some stuff. Uh, Picus published some of this originally and described a lot of this with moderate sedation. But here we uh, plan for most of these with general anesthesia. Then it's just other smaller things. You have to uh, cover the patient in a cranial drape, uh, which is basically just a watertight drape uh, because fluid is uh, flowing out of the scope. It can get on the floor. It can get into the uh, fluoroscopy unit. So the drape itself uh, just helps protect uh, everything and just make it so it's not a mess everywhere. In addition, you have to put a bear hugger on the patient uh, just to preserve core body temperatures. So it's things like that uh, that are not particularly difficult. They're just a little bit uh, different than our day-to-day. You also have to have a tower uh, that has the cameras and the monitors and the recording system. You have to have the high-pressure saline bags. So all of this is easy to have. You just have to uh, have it around when the time comes to do these things. Some people also use the longer cases. Yeah. for Yeah. And the setup is key with these as well. And like, you know, you can borrow these endoscope towers and you can borrow scopes from the ORs as well. And I know that other places sometimes do that, that you can just borrow the scopes um, from your gastroenterology colleagues or the urology colleagues or just the OR and they have, you know, scopes are abundant throughout the hospital. So if you ask the right people and you are, you know, scheduling in advance, then it should be relatively simple to, to get if you need the full-fledged scope tower and full-fledged uh, uh, non-disposable scopes, um, you, can, uh, you can definitely arrange that um, as well. So. so on the manuscript of yours that I read, it uh, said that orgastric and rectal tubes need to be placed for longer cases. Who has to put those in? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. The fellow. <laughs> Um, actually we have our nurses, we have our nurses do that. Um, and you know, some people don't all always do that. The, our, our practice here had been to do that just because of the large amounts of fluid that we're infusing. Um, so we have the anesthesiologist place an OG tube and put that to suction so that, you know, if you're doing something in the biliary tree, uh, that if the fluid, you know, backs up and goes into the stomach that the patient doesn't aspirate. So I think it's good practice to at least have an OG tube or some sort of a decompressive tube in case you're backing up. But to be honest, a lot of the fluid doesn't really go into the patient. A lot of it comes around outside around your scope essentially and down into that cranial drape that, uh, that Jeff was talking about. Um, so you usually should upsize your sheath at least a couple of millimeters bigger than your, um, or at least a millimeter bigger than the size of your, um, scope itself. So if you're using a, uh, 9.5 French scope, you should use probably a 12 French peel away sheath. If you're using a 22, okay. yeah, et cetera, you just uh, upsize it a little bit. So that a lot of the fluid comes out around the, around the scope itself. Um, and so then the rectal tube is just to control fluid as well. And we have them put this rectal containment device or whatnot so that you don't get a huge mess all over the floor. Cause some of these cases you're using like multiple three liter saline bags. So the, the saline bags we use are large. So they're the three liter saline bags um, that we sometimes put through a warmer 
uh, called a ranger. Uh, and, uh, sometimes you use like two or three bags of three liters and you're talking about a huge volume of fluid that may be going into the patient. Uh, although a lot of it is also coming outside and getting suction through that drape. So. Got it. Uh, now continuing on about, you know, the whole setup aspect of these, um, how does, you know, the access for these various interventions compared to, you know, what we're normally doing, you know, biliary tree, gallbladder, uh, renal collecting systems in the stomach. So it's actually really no different at all. Uh, so initially uh, for the first sort of series or the many of the first patients that we've done, these patients had pre-existing tubes, whether it be a cholecystostomy, a biliary drain, and nephrostomy. Essentially, uh, we had used just the pre-existing access, uh, placed a wire, uh, placed another safety wire, placed a sheath, and then uh, gone through that tract. But subsequently, we found that these can be done, uh, as Robbie said earlier, basically single session. So a lot of these we've done uh, single session gallstone removals uh, just by essentially placing a fresh cholecystostomy. We've done single session uh, stone removals from the biliary tree uh, just by placing a fresh biliary drain. And we've done the same uh, way in the stomach. We've done the same thing in the uh, genitourinary system as well. So it helps if you have a pre-existing uh, tube or pre-existing access to the system, but it's not obligatory in any way. And I think it can be done absolutely safely in a single session. None of the patients have had any complications from doing it in a single session. Uh, it doesn't seem like the track needs to mature uh, to these various organs for a long period of time beforehand. One other thing okay. with the gallbladder cases, you got to make sure your access is somewhat more in the body or fundus because it becomes really difficult if you have an antral access into the gallbladder that's close to the neck. We've had a couple of patients that yeah. came with pre-existing coli tubes that had the access right near the gallbladder neck. And then you're trying to flex backwards, trying to find the stones. And then you can't even use the rigid scopes with those types of accesses. You can only use the flexible scope and that makes it a lot more cumbersome. So oftentimes we try to make sure we have more of a fundal or, or body access so that it makes it a lot easier to manipulate your scope and be able to remove stones easily. Um, so I think that's an important thing about uh, some of the gallbladder cases with the biliary cases, as long as you have a, a good relatively peripheral access, you should be fine um, dilating it up all in a single session and, and getting in. But sometimes people will leave it, you know, the practice at a lot of other places is to allow it to mature, allow the tract to mature to four to, for four to six weeks, sometimes upsize the tube to 14 French, uh, ultimately over the course of up to six weeks, and then you can bring them back for endoscopy at that point um, after you've allowed the tract to mature. But we've found that it's been we haven't had any major issues just upsizing it in a single session in select cases where, uh, where they needed a stone removed. That was going to be my next question is, is how and when you close your access. So usually after we've uh, removed the stones and cleared the patient of their stones, um, it, it depends. So if we're doing a gallbladder case, what we try to do at the end of the gallbladder case after getting them stone free from their gallbladder itself is we try to get a transcholecystic wire placed. So we use a, a you know a glide cath and potentially a microcatheter to cross the, the valves and the <coughs> cystic duct and then get down into the small bowel. Uh, once we do that, then we put a V18 wire. If we used a microcatheter or if you use a glide wire, just pass our catheter down and switch for an Amplatz wire. And then we, we actually have been putting in an internal external drain, uh, so it, just a standard biliary drain, 
10 French biliary drain uh, transistically from the gallbladder down into the small bowel. And then we leave a 14 French drain in the gallbladder. And the reason we do that, and those are through the same track. The reason we do that is because we're usually using the rigid scope uh, for the um, cholecystoscopy cases. So we are making a 24 French hole in order to fit our 22 and a half French scope into the, into the gallbladder. And therefore we're leaving a 10 French transcystic uh, biliary drain and one 14 French uh, cholecystostomy drain. And that adds up to 24 French. And then what we do is we bring them back in roughly a week and we remove the transcystic drain over a wire and confirm the cystic duct is patent. And then we uh, then bring them back one week later to downsize the, the 14 French drain to a seven or a 10. And then we remove it a week later. So usually within about uh, eight weeks or so from tube placement to to, to removal if you allow the tract to mature or oftentimes just up to six weeks, then you can get the tube out relatively quickly. For biliary drains, it's a very similar thing. We usually leave a 14 French uh, biliary drain behind and then downsize it about a week later. And then eventually we can get it out about uh, two weeks post, uh, post colidocoscopy. So usually you can get these tubes out pretty quick. Uh, and that's what we've been kind of striving for. And I think that's the real reason that we push for doing some of these procedures. We've had a lot of patients who've had chronic indwelling drains for extended periods of time um, and were able to get their drains out. And we've even kind of expanded some of those indications to doing other more advanced techniques on patients with benign biliary strictures. We've started trying to treat those strictures with lasers and have been uh, successful in kind of removing uh, people's drains that have had long-term chronic indwelling biliary drains for benign biliary stricture instead of using a cutting balloon to cut the stricture, which has a questionable efficacy and, you know, putting large tubes, you know, it may not, may or may not work. We've actually been able to use the endoscope to directly visualize um, the fibrotic tissue in the, in the, uh, at the level of the stricture and actually cut that away using a CO2 laser, using, uh, um, using some of the other uh, holmium lasers as well. And that's been, you know, really life-changing for a lot of patients who've had indwelling drains for many, many, many years, uh, and getting them drain free has been, been key. I, I think as Ravi sort of alluded to, uh, some of the impetus for this originally was, uh, we have a tremendous number of patients here who have, uh, particularly, uh, long dwelling biliary drains or cholecystostomy tubes, uh, that are on the, uh, sort of tube for life track. So part of the idea was, uh, to get these patients to live tube free. Uh, and we've been finding more and more that with uh, using either colidocoscopy or cholecystoscopy, uh, we can get a lot of these tubes out. Uh, one of our colleagues, Jake Bundy, just uh, published a paper on looking at 350 uh, cholecystostomy tubes, and it was remarkable uh, with a little bit of uh, effort from a variety of teams. Most of these patients can get the tubes out. Uh, either if it's cholecystectomy or uh, through cholecystoscopy uh, with stone removal, uh, with a little bit of uh, concerted effort, we can get these tubes out of all these patients. Okay, so guys, in addition to uh, you know getting tubes out, so we could go through the different parts of the body that you're doing this, and and basically just see you know what are the things that you're doing, and and you know what can we offer in interventional radiology with endoscopy that you know these patients aren't able to get with existing uh, treatment measures. Um, so let's just briefly go through what you guys are doing in the gallbladder. Okay. I, th I think for the most part, as we alluded to, 
the gallbladder is sort of one of the most simplistic uh, organs in the body. So most of these patients are, a lot of our patients are patients who have many medical comorbidities, uh, sort of precludes them from cholecystectomy. And uh, essentially, they have large stones that are gallstones that are causing acute cholecystitis. So for the most part, the interventions in the gallbladder are just using either the rigid endoscope uh, in combination sometimes with the flexible endoscope and a bunch of lithotriptor devices or lasers to break up and remove the stones and then ultimately uh, get the cholecystostomy tube out. One thing I'll mention also on the gallbladder that's really cool and what makes those cases a lot faster with the rigid scope is we use the same device that the urologists use, the ultrasonic lithotripsy device. It's called the shock pulse SE. Uh, and that is essentially what they use for staghorn calculi. And it, it fits through the 22 and a half French scope easily. And it basically just uses ultrasonic en- energy to pulverize the stone and it has a suction on the back end of it. So it pulverizes the stone and then suctions it out. So if you have a large gallstone, uh, it's tremendously helpful in those cases where you have huge gallstones within the gallbladder because you can uh, take them apart very quickly, even faster than than it would be with a laser. Um, so that's that's helpful uh, with the patients who have like multiple and numerous innumerable small gallstones. We usually use baskets for those. There's this uh, rigid basket that's called the N-circle grasper, and that allows you to just t- pick up uh, lots of bigger stone or lots of smaller stones relatively easily and quickly. And and I will say just uh, with regard to the gallbladder and sort of a shameless uh, self promotion here, uh, Ravi Nishant uh, Patel and I. Uh, made a JVIR video recently on cholecystoscopy and gallstone removal, uh, which is on the JVIR website. And it's sort of, it's a 10 minute video that goes through uh, patient selection, a particular case, how to set up all the scopes, all the various uh, different devices that can be used to remove gallstones and uh, the patient outcomes as well. So it's uh, about 10 minutes. It's a tutorial uh, it's pretty, uh, painless to watch and it sort of goes through the whole setup of everything. Right on. Uh, I'll make sure we tweet that out again as well. Um, what about the biliary tree in addition to what we've already covered? So the biliary tree, uh, like Jeff alluded to, a lot of these patients have other medical comorbidities. Um, and so the patients who have comorbidities precluding them from undergoing surgery are really the ones who would benefit from, from these types of biliary transhepatic biliary endoscopy procedures. Um, patients who have like altered surgical anatomy of their biliary anastomosis, such as they have a hepaticojejunostomy or they have some weird anatomy in the stomach, such as a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, where it'd be difficult to do an ERCP. And so, yeah, that's one of the big things that we should, we should get at as well as if, if the patient can undergo ERCP, uh, that's probably the better option. You don't. You shouldn't do transhepatic endoscopy for every patient who has a, a stone in their bile duct. Um, ERCP is non-invasive. You don't have to poke the liver. Uh, you don't have to dilate a tract. If they can get there with the ERCP easily, that's always the first line option. But when they're unsuccessful or it's extremely difficult, like they'd have to do double balloon enteroscopy or they'd have to do advanced techniques to try to get to the to the biliary tree, those are the cases where we can come in and help out and that's how we've kind of bridged the gap with gastroenterology and with our urology colleagues and with other services. It's, we've made it more of a collaborative effort to trying to do, uh, to add these endoscopic techniques to our, uh, 
uh, armamentarium of services that we offer. Uh, it's not like we're just trying to steal cases or take cases away from other divisions or other departments. Um, we're mostly just trying to help make care better for patients, safer for patients, and make it easier to do certain procedures that might have otherwise been extremely difficult. And I, I think as Ravi alluded to, so it all kind of starts with uh, what you think of uh, as biliary stone removal. And that's sort of, I think, the working horse uh, for most of biliary endoscopy. But there have been a whole host of other uh, applications that we've done as well. So like I said, uh, remove foreign bodies such as AccuSticks or broken biliary drains from the biliary tree. Um, we've, as Rodvi alluded to, uh, helped uh, open up anastomotic strictures using either lasers, homeum lasers, CO2 lasers, or radiofrequency wires. Uh, in addition, uh, we've had a few patients who have had obstructing biliary tumors, uh, and we've helped debulk them using a bunch of uh, cautery devices or uh, biopsy devices with the help of the endoscopes as well. So there's a whole host of uh, different uh, opportunities and ideas that these things can be used for. Uh, it's a little bit up to your own imagination. One other thing we should get at too is some people may think, why can't I just stick a laser? I know there's a huge stone sitting in the common bile duct. Why can't I just put a sheet in and just put a laser on it? Or why can't I just sweep it with a balloon? The problem is that a lot of these stones are really large, first off. And so you need to, you need to either fragment them first in order to be able to push them through. So the, the, the main, main techniques with doing biliary endoscopy are that your goal is to just fragment the stone enough that you can push it down into bowel. And the gallbladder, it's a little bit different because it's a cystic duct. So you can't really push it through the cystic duct. So you have to actually physically remove every stone from the gallbladder. So, but with the biliary ones, it's a lot easier because you just need to fragment it such that you can then push it through the anastomosis. But the problem is with the laser, you have to actually have the laser aimed at the stone. Otherwise you can do a lot of damage to the side walls of the bile duct if you're not aiming it directly at the stone. Same thing with EHL, with endoscopic uh, hydraulic uh, or electrohydraulic lithotripsy devices. Um, you have to be touching the stone in order for that, uh, for, the, for the EHL to actually work. With the laser, you don't have to be touching it. There's a little red light that you just aim at the stone, and then you set your pulse frequency and your uh, uh, energy level, and then you can either choose to set it at a setting that causes you to dust the stone and turn it into small powdery fragments, or you can just make it to a setting where it just will fracture the stone in half and then allow you to just push the stone out into the, into the bowel. So what are you guys doing in the genetic urinary system? Uh, so a couple of things that came up uh, in the general urinary system, obviously, for the most part, uh, the urologists use these scopes to either fulgurate uh, tumors that are in the uh, kidneys or uh, for stone removal. So this is certainly something that we can help with in difficult cases. Um, it's something that can be done in a single session. I mean, uh, renal calculi or urethral calculi can be removed this method, uh, but that sort of goes into a little bit of the uh, politics between us and urology. But there, are, we found that it's been helpful for a couple of other interesting things as well, particularly foreign body removals. Uh, so Ravi wrote a series on uh, eroded embolization coils, uh, patients who had previously had a uh, renal arteriogram and a subsequent embolization uh, with renal coils that eroded from the renal arteries into the collecting system that were either causing infection or hematuria or so forth. And uh, we found that through a similar approach, uh, accessing the kidney, placing a sheath, 
using the scope, uh, we were able to visualize and uh, remove these eroded coils and uh, improve the hematuria and prevent infection. And these are both, one is published in JBIR and one is published in endourology. Uh, they're not cases that come up that often, but uh, they're cases that uh, require a bunch of different team members from urology and from interventional radiology as well. Uh, it's not something that someone can really do alone, but uh, it's sort of, again, thinking out of the box uh, as an additional application of endoscopy to do these sorts of procedures. I think we've uh, there have been a couple of cases where a uh, oh. patient's had a urinary diversion catheter, yeah, exactly. uh, and there's been some difficulty uh, exchanging or replacing uh, or placing a retrograde catheter. And with the help of using endoscopy from the stomal access, uh, the torturous anatomy can be navigated, the strictures can be identified, and wires can be passed, and ultimately a retrograde catheter has been successfully placed. Lastly, what are you guys doing in the GI tract? A bunch of different things in the GI tract. So we've had, similar to the cases that uh, Jeff had described, we also had uh, this patient who had coils that had eroded from uh, uh, a left gastric artery coiling for an ulcer uh, and had these coils that had eroded into the base of an ulcer that was sitting in the fundus of the stomach. And GI endoscopy had tried to do remove these coils uh, using you know, transoral endoscopy and were unsuccessful. They didn't have really good angles on it and they didn't feel like they could safely remove it. And their other concern was that they were worried that since this was in the left gastric artery and it had eroded into the ulcer that once they pulled the coils out that the patient might bleed. So they sent the patient to us. Uh, the patient had a, a gastrostomy access. We put an endoscope into the gastrostomy access. We're able to visualize the coils then and then successfully remove them while also having a transarterial access with a catheter in the left gastric artery ready to uh, reembolize the left gastric artery with glue or with some other agent if, if the patient hemorrhaged. Um, that ulcer had not healed over the course of a couple of years uh, and uh, that, that uh, coil had eroded through and it was causing recurrent bleeding. After we removed the coil, they rescoped the patient roughly three months later and the, the ulcer had healed. And uh, so we were able to help in that situation. We've also had foreign bodies in the stomach that have kind of caused problems, either caused gastric outlet obstruction. We've had a patient who had a broken gastrojejunostomy tube where the tube fractured and the, the jejunal limb of the catheter actually migrated into the duodenum. And we were able to successfully do transgastric endoscopy and successfully grab the, the, the piece of broken catheter and remove it in its entirety. We had another patient who had a broken uh, a stent that was uh, placed at the in the duodenum for gastric outlet obstruction right at the gastric antrum uh, duodenal junction, uh, and that stent migrated into the stomach and actually uh, during a tube change somehow migrated into the tract and we were able to successfully push it back into the stomach using an endoscope and then grab it and remove the stent from the patient in its entirety. Something else that's sort of interesting and scope-related uh, in the GI tract, uh, Ravi Kump came up with this great idea of closing uh, enterocutaneous fistulas or, gastro or gastrocutaneous fistulas. So these are patients that had long-term long, uh, uh, leakage from some sort of gastrointestinal tract to the skin, and uh, they had failed a whole bunch of different options whether it's gluing, whether it's fibrin placement, 
Uh, so Ravi came up with this idea of uh, using the endovenous laser to laser these tracks closed. Uh, it's worked particularly well, uh, better than a lot of options that we have. And uh, that's also, uh, it's in JVIR now or in the upcoming issue. And we've been able to watch the uh, closure uh, of these tracks using the laser and using the endoscope as well uh, to sort of see that it uh, sort of either burns or uh, sort of fibrosis the tract and closes them uh, in these patients that have uh, long, long-time fistulas. That is awesome. Um, I mean, there really are just a ton of really exciting opportunities that can come from this. Uh, and we really appreciate you guys just giving us an intro to how, you know, the average interventional radiologist can get involved with this. We'll save a lot of the rest of these details for SIR in LA. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people are really looking forward to your workshop. Is there anything else you guys would like to add that we haven't covered? So yeah, just, uh, uh, just again, just to put out a shout out for our workshop, it's on Wednesday uh, at SIR. It's uh, from 1 to 2.30 in Petrie Hall C at the LA Convention Center. Um, so we'd encourage everyone to attend. We're, we're hoping to have a good turnout and uh, educate everyone on the uses and uh, benefits of having an endoscope in your department. And I, and I think people can certainly uh, feel free uh, to reach out to us anytime. I know we've gotten some questions from folks in New York City and so forth, just sort of how to set up this practice and what equipment is even available or how you do any of this. Because I think a lot of this is we were fortunate here to have a lot of the equipment and have uh, people in the past, such as NARA, who, have, who had done these things. But if you're starting from scratch and you don't know where to start, uh, it can be a pretty daunting task. But it's overall relatively easy. You just need to know what's out there and uh, how to make it easy on yourself. So certainly anyone can reach out to us by email anytime. Call us. Uh, we're happy to answer any questions. And uh, I think this is definitely a huge endeavor and an amazing opportunity for interventional radiology in general. One final question. Do, um, do people need to sign up for the workshop or you can just show up and go? You can just show up and you can just show up and come to the workshop. Perfect. Um, all right, guys. Well, thank you again for, for coming back and joining us. And thanks to all of our listeners. And, and we look forward to seeing everybody in L.A. this year at SIR. See you guys on the next one. All right. Thank you. Thanks.